2: You're listening to Scaffold, a new podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. On this episode, I interview Adam Nathaniel Furman, a London-based designer whose practice ranges from architecture and interiors to sculpture, installation, writing, and product design. He is also the founder of the Postmodern Society, and has become a vocal advocate for that period of design, most recently leading a successful campaign to grant historically protected status to what is arguably the UK's first postmodern building, the Kominqing Triangle. I met with Adam in early January at his apartment in Soho, where his office is also based. The conversation touched on, among other things, Adam's interest in relationships between design and identity... The Queering of Architecture and his experience co-writing the recently published book Revisiting Postmodernism with the architect Terry Farrell. And now, here's the interview, I hope you enjoy it.
1: I'd kind of always wanted to be an architect since I was a little kid. I just thought I wasn't clever enough, <laughs> so I ended up going to St Martin's huh. to do art, and then. But I was just, I was just, just because of my personal fascinations, I was just drawn always towards spatial design, um, and and I just ended up going there. And then the, the tutor was really supportive, um, and basically he was like, told me like, you're not too stupid to do architecture, go on, <laughs> and then mentored me through to applying to universities. I kind of didn't do very well in my A levels, <laughs> um, and so I didn't get into like the top universities like ucl said bartlett didn't didn't even give me an interview because i didn't have the correct grades so i wasn't considered but the aa back then it's changing now but back then they didn't um you didn't they didn't have any criteria at all so you could come with no grades um the the criteria was all the interview so it's just whether they liked you on the interview which is quite an amazing thing so i ended up with people with no background in architecture like no degrees like carpenters and craftsmen like coming and they'd love them they really like them they'd bring them into the school um, and they, they just took me. And all, you know, it's the AA, so like ev- everyone's like super driven. It's a bit like um, army camp. You, you like didn't sleep and hardworking and you're all in it together and we just bonded like crazy. So we're quite a strong group still all these years later.
2: There's a central preoccupation of yours that must have emerged sometime as a student at the AA. And it has to do with identity, mm. broadly speaking. When did that first emerged for you? And was it kind of a function of the
1: students you were
2: with, fellow students you were with, or certain professors you had? Uh,
1: um, The AA was very tech-oriented. So um, when I came in, it was sort of like, and and while I was there, was sort of like the height of the, what is now referred to as the parametric uh, approach. It was just like, everything was very, very techy, folded surfaces. Um, In fact, in my second year, uh, me and another friend, another student, we did, I think, the first like parametric program. We made it on Excel, on Microsoft Excel. <laughs> um, so there was you know there was no visual interface or anything. We just made mathematical ma- mathematical formulas that then created points and lines and surfaces in space, which were then inputted into... I mean, I, I, it was like, by the end of that year, I was like um, uh, the guy, Neo from... Uh, uh, what's that the movie? Yeah, from The Matrix. <laughs> I was just seeing numbers everywhere. Like, it was no, but, uh, genuine. I like, could go through thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of... Of co- of just calcul of numbers and just know where I was in three dimensional <laughs> space, it was like ridiculous oh my but, any- but the- my teacher in that year was fantastic though, so he had a different approach. It was charles walker he's he's now very prominent um, but his it was his first year teaching, and his approach was different to the others. His was that uh, did anything that you do digitally he was tr- he would run the AGU uh, under cecil barman arab so okay. he was it was like an amazing thing to be part of that mm. and he was like if digital should be treated like every other design tool, that it should be something that you craft. So if you use a tool, you have to make the tool yourself and understand how the tool is made. So that's why it would literally like excel. Start with an empty spreadsheet. And it's a very different approach to anyone else. And it was really, really great. It was like crafted digital, all in right. a way. Uh, but not craft like using digital tools to make crafted objects. It was like crafting the actual digital tools. Um, whereas a lot of other people, there was just this, 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 sort of all the Patrick Schumacher type ideology around. Uh, and I reacted really, really strongly against that, because Um, You know, just from childhood, I was really, really interested in fine art, uh, really absolutely loved painting, uh, read a lot of theory already when I was in in high school about art and around architecture. And I just loved just all the rich questions that come with those kinds of things, not just identity. It's like philosophical questions about life, meaning, representation. Uh, embedded meaning in objects. Um, and none of that was present in, the, in any of the di- dialogue or discussions around digital architecture. It was just totally void of substance, the kind of substance that I was interested in. It was all just lots of really overly complicated words, like the landscape urbanism bullshit generated that, that didn't mean anything. And then underneath that, there was some very, very, very facile links to politics, which were in turn understood quite in quite a puerile manner reacting against that helped move towards a different like historiography so like I grew up in London in the 80s and the, late 80s and the early 90s and you know there were all these postmodern now I know I didn't know they were called postmodern I mean there were these buildings being built which now I know there's a lot of them is really not great quality but but they you know they fascinated me particular buildings Terry Farrell's buildings James Sterling's buildings and I really loved them and I continue to love them through university but people would like laugh at them ridicule them totally reject them. And, uh, so that, that very much led me towards, uh, looking back to that period and just trying to investigate what, what were the ideas that led to these strange things being built? Um, and at the same time as that, and just actually probably more importantly, it was also, I went back to fine art and other, other practices at the time, um, who were looking at at design um, in a in a richer kind of more cultural way and mm-hmm. kind of a more philosophical way mm-hmm. um, and mining those. I wonder if you
2: could try and like condense um, in a very like short format mm. the kind of ideas that
1: were swirling around for you near the end of your time at the AA. Towards the end, of, end of my time at the AA. Um, I guess like, fun, fun, just fundamentally, there's uh, you really get down to the core of it, it's uh, architecture and design that engages the imagination um, and accesses uh, some, some quality of childlike wonder in both the designer and the observer mm-hmm. and to do that and to do that, accessing um, or managing to embed a certain amount of philosophy and history and narrative into works which speak without needing to be said.
2: Mm. And so this like, this focus on
1: narrative, is that what led you to... But not narrative in the end result. Right. It's narrative only in the process. As a process. Because that's the thing, because I, I, I don't, I, I'm, I, I, I'm a total fetishist for the object. I mean, I just love things. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's why it's been very difficult that for most of my career just like making digital stuff. I just like, oh, I touch everything. Um, and once, for me, like once something is made, it's to achieve this sort of holy status, which requires silence. And I think that by the time something is made real, if there's narrative and depth that's been part of the process of designing it, that should come across. But in, in, in come across as an atmosphere. Um, there's nothing I dislike more than like, being shown something and then needing a, a sheet of mm-hmm. text to explain to me what it is. And that's why when people describe their work as narrative, I tend to come across that a lot. You know, like... The work is in the explanation, not the thing itself. The work is the explanation. The thing right. itself is almost a byproduct as mm-hmm. a tool to help illustrate your sort of long text. I mean, Haydick was like that a lot. Right. I mean, Heydick's works, you know, some of the characters when they're built are like amazingly expressive, but a lot of it is just like, you do need to, you need to understand a full narrative um, so yeah, it's like narrative and process, and then end result should be eloquent. And eloquence is an important word for me. It's eloquent on its own through impression and through atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and you know, the, another aspect that's always been present in everything that I do, again coming a lot from the art world, but also from Italian Italian intellectual uh, relationship with design, um, is the is a, a relationship with capitalism and consumerism. That doesn't reject it. That has a a desire to find depth and meaning within systems that um, are, you know, quite clearly destructive and problematic. But finding, yeah, finding finding moments of of passionate interest and beauty precisely within those.
2: And so, right after school, you went and worked
1: for OMA. For a few months. No, 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 I no. Mean, while I was at school, because we, oh, really? we'd, we'd have a year out. Okay. When we're in the UK, so you do three years, then you do a year out. working. I and I, did, I went to MA then. then. Two more years.
2: And what what was that experience like, and how did
1: it kind of OMA? change? Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> it was so cool. It was long amazing. You for us? Just a couple I, months. I was just I, six months. Okay. I, I couldn't stay any longer physically. Uh, the hours were I just not <laughs> I, I couldn't take it <laughs> uh-huh. basically physically. Um, like, my first day was there until 4 a.m. Oh my <laughs> my God, first so day. Um, but so, that cliche does hold up of being a. Oh, but I was there so long ago. I don't right. know if it's still like that. But yeah, it definitely held up when I was there. And it was funny because the office manager was like desperately trying. I think this was a perpetual fight between the office manager and the project leaders because I like was desperately trying to get everyone to go home. Mm. And like, no one ever would. <laughs> this is a culture.
2: Um, still being still in school and relatively idealistic and excited about the kind of ideas that you're experimenting with. Uh, within academia, was that at all borne out in your work experience at OME? No. It?
1: Um, and it's funny, because like back then I was, I was so disappointed at the time by what I experienced, I because I was so idealistic. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of studied, and I was all like reared up for this like new kind of approach and looking for a certain type of depth and richness. And then I went to and I thought, Rem, you know, Rem, <laughs> Rem would have that. Because it does, I mean, you know, especially in his writing. Um, and The Office wasn't like that. The office was full of no, normal normal architects who just worked more hours and were more tired, uh and did funkier shapes. Um and didn't discuss anything intellectual and didn't talk about history and didn't know very much. I think uh, this is probably
2: like the experience of a lot of recent students who yeah. are going out into the professional of field. Of
1: course, I think it's quite a normal yeah, experience. Yeah,
2: right, but then... <laughs> but the thing but is, Where I was, else could you go? If if you can't find that at a place like... Uh, OMA, no,
1: exactly, that's the thing, because I, I, I look back now and I realise actually how lucky I was to be there. Because now after I've experienced lots of offices and I've seen how other, I, I, how other places work, I now know that actually it was probably... It's like... The, one of the best <laughs> like they compared to others they actually do try and think just not to this crazy level I was in my idealistic world was imagining did that kind of then temper the
2: remaining years you had at school in terms of the kind of work you wanted to explore or what was the impact of that experience on your uh, schoolwork
1: It's an, it's an interesting question. I think it was this looking for iconic shapes and form that I think I just it just really, uh, I didn't enjoy and I didn't like it. I felt that it was a bit vacuous and I really got, I think I reacted really strongly against that. Now I look back and I'm like really actually quite respectful of it and I kind mm. of enjoy the work a lot looking back. But I was very much pushed towards process. Uh-huh. So when I left... On the one hand, I got massively pushed again back into history, and in architectural history. So actually, the first thing I did when I left OMA was I went on a pilgrimage to visit all of Plechnik's buildings. Okay. Tell me a bit about Plechnik. Uh, it was a great architect. Do you know Plechnik? Whoever's listening to this might not be familiar. Jose Plechnik uh, was um, a, an architect in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and his he always incorporated history, historical elements and historical language. But he, tr- he totally synthesized everything and, and sort of remade everything he referenced. So he wasn't a revivalist in any way. He made something new mm. synthetically by combining lots of historical precedents. And he genuinely made, I think he was probably like the last great classical architect. Just thinking back to what you were saying about mm-hmm. your experience in school earlier on, yeah. it sounded like there was
2: a moment of discovery of like, uh, a particular movement that had a name that resonated with you that you kind of wanted to pursue, um, and that seemed to be postmodernism. So maybe no, you'll- it yeah? wasn't
1: postmodernism. No, okay. postmodernism has never been something that I personally valued, especially right. not the the kind of iconic Venturi, Jenks, definition of postmodernism. It's just not particularly of interest to me in my work. So like right. I came across post I started to be labeled like, yeah, and started to get interested in those kinds of things in terms of actually my work. Um, via alternative aesthetics so like i was actually i was an antiques dealer while i was at university like i had like an ebay store that was like star rated so i was like dealing antiques and i was dealing very very kitsch camp stuff and i really loved porcelain ceramic and i was dealing ceramics and um and i've always loved this sort of very very um you know people use the word kitsch i find that sort of really frustrating but this these aesthetics that are alternative and very Profuse and over the top, you know, sort of about the abundance of ornament and life and decoration, and that's very much tied into also early queer culture.
2: Mm-hmm. Why is kitsch a frustrating term for you?
1: Well, because it's been labelled as fascist. Kitsch was defined uh, by Gilo Dorfles and others as being, you know, the the aesthetic, sort of the aestheticization of of people's base identities and desires and there's like the commodification of politics or the aestheticization of politics so Mm. you know the the famously they show like the nazi figure of porcelain figurines and the nazi tea sets that are super kitsch but like it's like swallow this evilness whole because it's like it's so homely Mm. but actually there's this whole other world or whole part of it which is actually just a profound love of space of sort of, of personal expression and comfort and and also, like creating other sense, other other taste cultures, which don't conform to like the high intellectual taste culture of any given time, and like queer culture in the past has very much uh, taken up those alternative uh, taste codes, which are really over the top, and use them to create spaces of their own with their own sets of value judgments that are different to like the status quo or the zeitgeist, which are normally very very macho, mm-hmm. dripping in brochure <laughs> well, now, but like, you know, dripping in machismo um, and moral value judgment. Um, and so I was just drawn to that from 19th century queer culture, early 20th century stuff. Um, and also just this sort of world of this, this, it's kind of died now, but like this sort of culture of like antique dealers and people who like collect leftover stuff. Uh, and then from there finding out, you know, collecting and the, the expression of identity through objects and space, and also through decoration and ornament. Um, as being a very, very profound and deep and complex thing is something that the art world has always recognised, or has recognised over the past 30 years. And it's, again, it's for queer culture, has been important within the art world. And then just basically going from there into a whole host of aesthetics, alternative approaches to architecture, alternative aesthetics, which are, were not postmodern. But part of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was that you know there were these buildings and postmodernism you know not not the Jenksian Venturian type but the whole it's now been used to label a whole era that you know almost all of those people saw themselves not as postmodernists um, and it's labelled all of these people from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s with a very diverse range of practices looking at lots of interesting questions and people have just labelled it postmodernism and thrown it away and right. actually there's a whole world of of uh, ways of approaching architecture as a cultural pursuit. That have been lost with that throwing the baby out with the bathwater issue. So, there were some tactics that I found within there really interesting, but actually, was the label postmodernism was always problem- very problematic for me. Okay, because so, you just like oh, you just do towers with pediments. <laughs> you know, you get dismissed.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting, because you, I mean, you've obviously recently co-authored a book called Revi- Reviving Postmodernism, Revisiting no, yeah, no, 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 Postmodernism. No, no, no. See, that's the
1: problem, because people
2: have been, <laughs> say, no, people have been saying you're it's reviving a, it, we're not. It's an interesting slip, actually, I just made there. Mm. But uh, Revisiting Postmodernism with Terry Farrell. Before we talk about that book, though, yeah. um, um, you worked for a slew of, uh, of architects in London, including Ash Sakula, Ron Arad, but you've also maintained... And a, Farrells. And Farrells, of course, most recently. Yeah. And you've also maintained a kind of personal practice throughout through that as well. That, yeah. Starting with Madden Studio in 2010. Yeah. So this seemed to be the place, the opportunity where you could first kind of
1: exercise this interest in what you're calling alternative aesthetics. Yeah, So like, gen- yeah, Madden Studio was actually done as a full-time pursuit. For a very short period of time, those three of us, we set it up together. The work that I did over those periods by myself I didn't have to do it wasn't like bread and butter stuff mm-hmm. so I, I literally just did the things I really wanted to do and it turns out that almost every project was actually a really great way of pursuing my particular interests whether it be in process ideas or in, in form, for, you know, formal investigations um, so they were very much about creating a particular aesthetic and approach this is like looking back and it's, it all looks so planned. It wasn't, this is just what ended up happening, if I sort of post rationalize
2: But I mean, it does make sense in a way that uh, those three years working you know, on this personal project, you're kind of crystallizing a certain set of ideas that uh, you could then bring to an institution, for example, like the Design Museum, where yeah. in what, 2013, yeah. Yeah, and that's you a, were a designer in yeah. residence. Yeah, which
1: when it came to the Design Museum uh, brief, which was identity, which was like, wow, that's so cool, it's so perfect. It was just like the flood. It was just like the dam burst. <laughs> it was just like I went nuts. I was working full time throughout the whole thing. The other residents were, they were working full time on the residency. I was actually working right. for Ron around the whole time. Oh really? Right. And Ron was like, great. Yeah, I was like, I'd come into the office like God. half asleep, and it would be fine because I think he, he encourages people who work for him to like do their own do their own stuff. So, can you um, talk
2: talk a bit about that experience of being a designer in residence at the Design Museum and that process of? honing uh, a thesis and then ultimately producing uh, this installation, Identity Parade.
1: Um, So I've always, since I was growing up, felt a very, very, very tenuous relationship with identity in the sense that like, I've never really, especially when I was young, it was like, not traumatic, it was like, I was like, I don't know who I am, in the sense that I really didn't know who I was. Like, I felt like I would Identity would change constantly like i 'd read a book and i 'd be a different person and like I just felt like I was fit flopping all over the place and who was I and i 'd move between groups of friends and uh, and I think in in this kind of culture where we 're not told who we are uh, we 're not given identities uh, old role models are broken down you know uh, it's it, it can be quite difficult to understand what you are um, in in which case it became very important for me to con- kind of like try and construct kind of some kind of coherent sense of what I think about the world, who I am, um, how I relate to all these things that I feel keep changing me, all these these movies and adverts and books and ideas and things telling me what's important. Uh, and then relating it to what I find grounds me, which is the reality of things, which have some sort of like calming presence because they're, they're fixed, they're real, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're solid um, without rejecting the flux and the flow of like our identities online and our identities in conversation and in In literature, which is why these, which is how I used film. So, film was like the flux and the change and the craziness of of the notion that there's anything fixed, and then objects being something that one can relate to as a spatialized version of like an identity at one given point. Anyway, these were all flying around, Mm -hmm. and the brief came for Identity Parade. And actually, I don't know if you saw it's online somewhere, but like I made a film setting up. Uh, The proposal for a process that would explore precisely these issues, but in a very tangible way, because like I can sound all over the place and like lots of ideas, and I can write essays on it, but actually, how do you turn that into like a clear project? And I just sort of gave there's a little prequel of like what is identity today, how does that relate to design, how does that relate to new technologies in design, and then how can I explore that? Um, And the exploration was, as you know, it's again creating a character. Uh, who's locked in his room for three months and he only re- he can only relate to his friends and his world through the on- th- through the online through the web <laughs> um, and every day has to make a new object um, and then through that all of these stories and uh, kind of identity issues um, uh, and technology issues uh, material issues um, that were happening with him every day so like his Facebook anxiety or as uh, it's like uh, Instagram obsessions. Uh, um, generalized anxiety disorder. Like his iPhone sucking all his attention. These would turn through narr- a narrated story and a material technique with its own parameters, a type of three D printing, into an object. Um, and so the idea was that he would be he either died, and then his collection, basically his studio, got taken to the design museum. Um, and. Uh, and it worked, and and then the the film for that project is like a you know Star Trek the Vulcan mind meld, so it's like a Vulcan mind meld of his whole time during the three months, mm. and that's that's me again. There's I have several films like that, but it's that churn, it's that nervous, so sort of incommensurability of various issues um, in sequence that make up an identity of a designer. That's what I'm interested in, and that's what the film is. Mm. And then the object's are like a silent, frozen identity. But I, I as I mentioned before, like I'm I worship the silent object Uh (laughs) i just not only the silent object but like also the the silent but eloquent interior and the facade that smiles at you and Mm. tells stories Mm -hmm. or just implies implies excitement and other worlds so yeah it's it's the in a way like i'm like i'm i use all these technologies and stuff but i'm actually like super old-fashioned and when you, when you say silent, you obviously mean, like,
2: static. But um, I don't think most people would describe your, your industrial design or your sculptural work as silent. It would be loud, wouldn't it? Like, I mean, these are incredibly expressive objects. They're very mm. colorful, very vivid, very flamboyant. Um,
1: they're kind of insane. Like, they're just they're, they're vibrating at a pretty high frequency. Yeah. But I guess what I mean when I say silent is that they're not digital. So they don't try and move, or swing, or they're do, not do stuff. They're, yeah. they're also, and they're not digital. They're not like, they don't have embedded technology in the surface. I, I guess I'm thinking in comparison to like, yeah, things that interact or move or right. have digital surfaces or, the or are of, in the
2: VR. Or,
1: hmm?
2: They're the outcome of digital processes. I mean, the fact that you're using 3D printing to produce. Is that right? A lot of the ceramic objects.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it's kind of by
2: the by right. for me. That's not really um, integral to the meaning of the object in the end that it
1: was produced. Not at so. all. Uh-huh. No. no. No, in the sense that it's just, I, you know, I'll, I'll follow a process because that's, that's what's available to me. I mean, I, the reason I started 3D printing ceramics and 3D printing other things was because I couldn't afford to do anything else and I don't have a workshop and I'm not very good with my hands. I kind of, I mean, I, like at school, I made lots of nice things. But I'm not a fetishist, like I'm not a craft fetishist. I have a lot of respect for the people who make really good things. So like when I'm on a project and I get to work with craftsmen, I love it, but I have respect for them. I don't want to do it myself. Mm -hmm. I'll work with them. Mm. And digital was just a way that I could, in a way, produce stuff entirely on my own Um, with my computer, like at a cost that was affordable and Mm. one-offs. And why ceramics? Similarly, I fell into it. so, <laughs> I wanted to collect something. <laughs> so I, I'm a hoard. I was a hoarder. I am. I mean, I, I'm kind of a hoarder. I'm slightly more organised, but um, I I used to hoard. So I just collect. Like I used to drag back like crates, <laughs> like giant pallet, wooden pallets from the street. Um, and what happened was that I wanted to just focus those energies, <laughs> the collecting energy, that clearly I just have. I'm like I'm like an animal. Like I, I'm a squirrel that's collecting things all the time. Um, and I couldn't afford, I started to look at paintings, couldn't afford that, started to look at, um, I I can't remember what I looked at, but I looked at some different options and jewelry and like, they were all just too expensive. There was just like no way that I could cater for my insatiable Mm -hmm. (laughs) need for, to, to be dealing with new things every week. And like ceramics were, I found, I stumbled across ceramics and they were just totally affordable. Uh, started learning about them, started collecting them, and oh my god they like the world this world opened up I mean basically ceramics are like you know civilization began with ceramics I mean like you you take mud and you put fire on it and it 's like the very first every civilization does that um, um, and it 's been present in every single culture and not only is it are, are they architectural and they used in architecture but also they compress within them the entire artistic discipline. Uh, and, and design um, a, a sort of approach and very often social structures and religious structures of, this, of the civilization that is producing them. Um, um, and it just became like this s- incredible like fulcrum of culture. So like all culture just from every period can be read and analyzed through the ceramics of the period. It's like amazing. Mm-hmm. And It just kept blowing me away. Um, and what is it? Cynic Doke. Is it synecdoche? synecdoche. Synecdoche. Wow. What about like it? Albuquerque. <laughs> Isn't that like one thing that is like represents the whole world? So yeah. It's like ceramics are like that. Uh huh. So I, I got into the whole like kind of metaphysical side and then the cultural side, the anthropological aspect of them. Mm-hmm. But then also I started to just completely fall in love with the material. I mean, it's just <laughs> I like, just like as a collector, you hit, you learn how to hit with your teeth, the, the exact ringing sounds it makes. The changes in sound when there's hairline cracks, on there's cracks, when there's chips. The different types of rings for different thicknesses, different different types of firing levels. So higher the, the higher the firing level, the, the higher the ring. Hmm. I just fell down this rabbit hole. Uh, um,
2: that's so interesting. This idea of of ceramics as a medium on which a culture can imprint itself quite yeah. easily. Yeah. And also, I'd never thought of it that way as a synecdoche. So.
1: To, you take a small thing and it stands for something much larger. Yeah, which is what a lot of ceramic artifacts, they do do that for the broader cultures in which they were located. Have you and read you this can... book, The White Road by Edmund DeWall? Oh, it's really good. I, mean, I saw a about... lecture about him. Uh-huh. I, I, sorry, I, lo- I, saw a lec- I saw him give a lecture about the book when it came out. Okay. Um, well, yeah, just
2: the amount of meaning embedded in a material like that. I guess it does make a lot of sense that, in a way, um, not only porcelain but ceramics in general it kind of stands for... Design—it's the most basic or elemental, in it, a malleable. in its most medium. profound
1: form, d- d- as in design that absorbs culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Following um, your residency at the Design Museum, um, you won the UK Rome Prize.
1: Yeah, in twenty fourteen
2: for architecture. Yeah. Um, with which resulted in you traveling to Rome and spending time there working on a research project, which ultimately culminated in. What seems like a very similar project to what occurred at the Design Museum? Could you talk to us a little bit about that experience? Yeah,
1: it's sort of like the same project on a city scale. Uh-huh. So, so basically, the way it worked was I I'd go on long walks, um, and then at the end of the walk, I would come home and home to the studio, and I would do I mean, some of them there. But I would do a capriccio or two, and that was like a, a intuitive collapsing of all the things that I'd seen during the day into like a tableau, into a vignette.
2: And so what, just for people who might not be aware, what is a Capriccio exactly and why
1: did you decide to use that format in distilling your experience in the city? Um, because it's it's like a standard traditional format of a way of distilling reality into something that is uh, more representative of the ideas you have about it. So, you know, famously um uh, Canaletto would do, did views of Venice, which are not possible. They're not real views, but they're more representative of Venice than the views, the real views would have actually been. So mm-hmm. he sort of puts extra buildings, and then he puts fanciful buildings that don't exist, and he starts to create his own version of Venice. Um, and there's also architects in the 18th century and the 17th century who create, you know, sort of ideal views of all their favourite architectures with like their own architectures, and it's sort of just an Im- imaginary world where where things conform to. Um, an idea of reality that you're investigating, um, and a capriccio is just like that, that's what a capriccio is. It's like an it's like an intuitive creation of an alternative place. then simultaneously, there would be uh, every week or every other week, there'd be like a story that I found, like or a building that I found, or an architect that I found, or an issue that I found um, that I would want to explore in detail. So the character of one of those stories would come together and reorganize the forms from a capriccio, and they would turn into a ceramic object. So it's similar to how the objects from Identity Parade would um, uh, absorb a particular emotion uh, or issue that the character was uh, going through at the time. But here it was, it was absorbing an architectural story or an urban characteristic into the into the uh, the form of the architectural ceramic object, and then at the end. Yeah, a little bit like the Sir John Soane Museum, right? They they create a city of the ex- my particular subjective experience.
2: Uh, you mentioned the Soane Museum, and I mean, uh, one version of the way this project has been presented publicly is in the kitchen of the Soane Museum.
1: Yeah, which is the contemporary space now uh-huh. for like contemporary work for exhibitions and yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> like cooking, cooking up It's, funny, it's the Soane Museum, so it's like. Where do we put things? Uh-huh. <laughs> and the kitchens, as you probably they are quite empty. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the, um, the curator, Owen Hopkins, it was his idea to use to start using them for con- uh, as a space to show contemporary work that is in the spirit of Sone somehow. Mm-hmm. So he's got some cool ideas for the next shows as well. But this is like the inaugural one. I mean, these objects in that instance
2: were standing by themselves. They didn't have as much of the supporting narrative or context
1: how do you, How would you see a public receiving that work? As in, you would have hoped for it to be less abstract, or or maybe you would have. I don't know. No. So that, that's things so that going through university and like there's a lot of discussion now about like architecture and design being a collaborative pursuit and it's, there's no genius, not in no individual. It's not about the individual. There's, there's kind of this kind of discussion. Actually, for me, it's the individual rela- passion relationship to like the creative process is very important like artistic aspect to it the kind of magic of things is happening and you don't quite know why but it has happened and so i can explain that there's that process of like inspiration was taken from capriccio and from a story and then it turned into an object but actually it's not that simple right it's much more it's, it's much of a, most of a strange, think alchemical that- thing that goes on. And trying to reduce it to that, that equation would kill it for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that ambiguity, especially like on a
2: public platform, is actually really productive. At one point you were featured on the BBC in an interview with Mary Beard. Yep. And um, there are some really key kind of themes that emerged in like that brief conversation you had. One had to do with history and your experience of it. One was uh, the idea of the city as a kind of physical manifestation of something like the internet. Yeah. And then the other was this idea of color and what it means in architecture for you today. And uh, re- interestingly, the way you described that last point was that for you, um, dressing up all of these um, kind of classical forms in these vibrant colors was a way of kind of um, dragging them. Mm. So like further to that point, more recently you gave a talk at Berkeley this past spring
1: on yeah. queering April, architecture. April, I think. Oh, the conference. You know, the, the question comes up a lot. It's like, is there a queer aesthetic? You know, and the automatic answer is no. no there's, there's, a, <laughs> there's a queer relationship to space, which is a reactionary thing, because a reactive thing, it it's, tends to be in opposition of the mainstream. So it can't have a fixed form, because it depends on what, what the changing nature of uh, of standard space or normalizing space is. But at the same time but then, then at the same time I kind of disagree. It's almost like impossible to disagree because it's everyone argues that. Mm. But at the same time I think there are characteristics, formal characteristics which are which can be um, spoken of as as queer in many ways, which is why I like the term drag, because it's a certain theatricality that's exceptionally over Overwrought, and you know, possibly bitchy and eloquent, um, and uh, you know, being multiple things at the same time, and ambiguous in its in its identity, um, and like volubly celebrating that, and I think so. There's uh, there's a few formal techniques from color to expression expressivity theatricality um, that I that I I do believe. Uh, Operate in the same way on form as as um, uh, sort of countercultural queerness can operate on space and and uh, um, ways of living. With great reason, a lot of the discussion of queerness is about uh, spaces spaces of alternative domesticity, alternative ways of living, uh, alternative relationships to the body, things which are not um, uh, sort of instrumentalized by capital and by consumerism and that have managed to be outside of like the accepted norms. And then there's this discussion, now, obviously, about the fact that over the past 15 years, gay culture per se has been very much commodit- commodified and is actually more capitalist in an extreme way through gentrification and a lot of other means than than any other aspect of of culture. Um, but actually, I'm, I'm, I just wanted to discuss, and I was quite interested in the aspect of, of uh, queerness in space and architecture from a position of power throughout history. So those people who are, on, who are very much within the high, highest echelons of power within the professions, but who have always been sl- other and sort of slightly outside of accepted norms. So people who are simultaneously, um, people who are canonic- canonical, they're producing canonical designs, they're very much looked towards, they're in positions of power, but at the same time they're always, um, uh, people are very wary of them. Uh, and obviously Philip Johnson is a very, is a prime, is a prime figure of that, but... But um, the very that slight otherness, but on the edge of what is considered acceptable and um, what is considered like the taste making elite gives them a, a, a sort of an aura of palatable otherness or palatable difference, which actually makes them more powerful than all of those people who are the same as everyone else within the particular taste culture of the time so they're like the outre that is acceptable um, and I think queerness throughout history has always very. I think there's been an aspect of queerness that's very actively pursued that position on the periphery of keeping one foot in, one foot out. Oscar Wilde is another great, great example. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that that very much does translate through to design tactics and ways of operating and relating to other taste cultures. So, um, you know, Susan Sontag picked out the aesthetics of camp in the 1960s. Um, and I think a lot of these figures come from those sorts of worlds or those sorts of positions and bring uh, a, an aesthetic that's sort of not, not acceptable and they give it a, a sort of intellectual cachet. Mm. Um, and in a way, these, these are the people who, in a way, do precisely that thing that queer, cu- queer theory hates or critiques so much and has is having so much difficulty with, is it makes things palatable. It makes them consumable. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess my point was that, that the figures like that the fulcrums, or the, the crux, the links between alternative cultures and the absolute mainstream positions of power are just as much a part of queerness as those alternative cultures themselves. They're part of this meta- metabolic process to like keep everything flowing and rejuvenated.
2: So you're setting up this idea of like someone who is other but still on the inside in terms of defining, uh, for example, what is good taste or... Making uh, being in a position of power essentially to make decisions that sway public opinion, and by
1: being other and by being queer, mm-hmm. being protean, being the figures that can actually slip away and out of what's currently acceptable in that mainstream, while still being respected and part of that mainstream group and leading them in new directions. But what I guess what I was saying is that they're as part of picture and as important part of picture of queerness as those who live a totally alternate and separate lives.
2: Mm-hmm. And so to be queer simultaneously queer and mainstream is somehow an ideal position to occupy for you.
1: Um, oh, for me? Yeah. Oh no, sorry. This was just for the. This wasn't about. Uh,
2: this, or I guess I, another I, way of putting it is, where do you see yourself then okay. in terms of center and periphery?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would. These are you know these are huge figures. I would never. I wouldn't. I just never really associated myself with them. I guess I could people get confused also with the book of postmodernism. I have historical interests, theoretical interests, mm-hmm. and they're not. Me. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's, it things I'm doing. So for instance, figures
2: Although, like that. I mean, it is interesting that in this book, uh, revising, revisiting postmodernism, I mean, you have your own work
1: in that's there well. I didn't want it there. Really? Yeah, Terry, Terry absolutely wanted them in there. Okay. I really didn't want Gary in there.
2: Uh-huh. But I mean, it's, it's there nonetheless. <laughs> Ter- Terry always, I mean, he's Terry,
1: so he got, he got what he wanted, uh-huh. but. Um, I just brought it up because to me, I thought that was your decision somehow. <laughs> um, no, I asked, I asked very politely twice, and very politely twice he said they're going to be in there. Mm. <laughs> so.
2: Okay, but before we go back to the, before yeah. we go towards the book, um, I guess the question I'm asking has to do more with what um, you see your identity being in terms of the world of contemporary design and architecture, mm. or where you want to be positioning yourself. I guess a way of getting into this part of the conversation has to do with your presence online and the way you use social media. And the way you talk about, for example, uh, this idea of beauty and artifice, and uh, how you start to use relatively superficial um, means Mm. um, to get down into deeper ideas or conversations. Um, So why don't we talk about Instagram for a second? Oh, god. (laughs) How is that a design
1: tool for you? Is it a design tool? Instagram it's such a weird thing um, i don't know, i don't I don't know if it's a i don't think it's a design tool i don't think i've i don't think I've managed i mean it wasn't an intention but i, I don't think I've managed to use it as a design tool um, most in, a lot of instagram accounts become very popular because they do one thing right like beautiful grids of facades or uh you know i, I post-architectural plans of circles or, um, you know, somebody who just does post-modernism. I've just sort of done the opposite. I really want to convey generally, some of my students as well, the, the, the plurality and the diversity of what constitutes good quality architecture. Um, and effectively smashing people in the face at least twice a day with things that they would never consider good or interesting or worth thinking about. So it's like, I think of it as like my gallery space my white cube. And I'm putting things in there constantly that I'm like, is this architecture? Is this good? Is this good? And normally if I put it it normally means I think it is. Um, And these are not things that I like. These are things that are interesting. Um, And breaking out of that notion of taste as something that's given, of like rejecting things for reasons which you don't quite know what they are, because... Basically, you're inculcated and you're culturated or you're you're cultured by magazines, by people around you, by your peers, to like certain things. I try and get people to question that and actually think, actually, why do I not like that? Why is that hideous? Why is that tacky? What does tacky mean? It doesn't mean anything. Um, And that sort of breaking down of preconceptions automatically makes people... uh, start creating their own systems of value judgments because they realize, oh, actually, why do I dislike that? There's no real reason for it. And what's nice is that sounds like a funny thesis, but I've actively seen it happening to quite a lot of people since my Instagram has happened, like people messaging me and saying, oh my god, I've completely revalued what I think about what is good and what's not good, and like I don't know what I think anymore. (laughs) and the, an easy one is postmodernism. People are like, oh, I like postmodernism and now, but it's very much—I don't know if you know from the Instagram—it's very much not just postmodernism. It's obvious, mm-hmm. kind of all architecture.
2: But it feels like there is a specificity to it. That yeah. This feed, yeah.
1: Elaborate what do you mean.
2: I guess there's a there's a, there's a little bit of irony. There is a lot of, I guess, questioning, like you're saying, is this good or not? But. Um, I feel like it is predominantly postmodern buildings, maybe not of the canon that we're used to learning about in school, okay. but uh, of the era and of the general intent mm. that uh, architects who make those buildings have, which is to uh, upheave a sense of history, yeah. uh, for better or for worse, and encourage a, a more diverse, um, you know, set of materials, a set of references, and um, set of influences. That maybe has been predefined by our kind of uh, the narrative that we're taught you know to respect and adhere to and so you use the word influence before and of course like we're in this era now of influencers online yeah. is that is that a part of your practice in a way is that something you aspire to be i mean what it feels like you're trying to do is tip the balance in the other direction uh, to encourage a different kind of taste to take shape and you're not only doing this on instagram i mean you run your own studio is it at central saint martin's where a lot of the work that comes out of there Mm. appears to be of in this vein yeah it feels like a part of a much larger project which is about um re-educating uh in a much popular more popular and accessible way um what architecture has
1: come from and what it is or can be today. But that's what I mean with the Instagram. I'm trying to break down people's preconceptions, so that which is what happens with with my students, so that they can be freed in a way to like have more fun and like create their own tastes. And, and it's a little bit. It's the same with identity, right? It's except whereas with identity, things are quite lost at the moment, and for a lot of us, we have to construct our own ones. Well, they're still given ones if you want to be a Kardashian, but. Um, with taste, it's actually, we're still, we're still very 19th century. Everything is given. Like, people don't construct their own tastes. And if they do, they're considered, like, oh, these crazy, quirky people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, I guess, a psychological game through Instagram. I, I, it's true, I do it in other, other forums as well, but Instagram's an amazingly effective one. It's like a psychological game where you sort of, like, change cards in front of people and say, like, think of a good building. And then you're, like... <laughs> and, then, and then you, like, terrorise them, and then you're, like, and you say, this is a good building! And, them, <laughs> and, they're like, and they're, like, you know, their eyes held open, like, in Clockwork Orange, and they're, like, horrified. It's like, no, it's so horrible! I don't want to look wanna... This is a good building! <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and so it's sort of, it's like culturing them in a different way. Mm. But culturing them in a way that doesn't give them a set of rules. It bra- it's breaking down rules. I mean, it's, it, look, it's, it's, I guess in a way it's, like, the traditions of negative critique, right, which liberalism is so good at doing, and people complain because it doesn't build up positive examples. But li- negative critique critiques things and, and shows their underlying, the underlying systems at play. You know, So famously, one-dimensional man looked at advertising in the 1960s, and it showed how we're all being manipulated and how evil it was and how it's tied to capitalism and how it uses our psychology and it makes us all really flat and one-dimensional. Um, but it didn't propose something new. It just critiqued everything. So like, you read something like that and you're like, the world's terrible. And they're like, what do I do? Um, and actually, my, my wanting to build substance in without rejecting contemporary society is very much a response to texts like that. But this is a similar thing. It's like negative critique just through images mm-hmm. of like what value judgments are of what, good, what is good and what is bad. Because the more of these things you see, you question what you're, you've been taught.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, oh, God, this is interesting. So, it, yeah.
2: Just while we're on the subject of academia, yeah. um, you don't have a PhD, are you considering doing one? No. I just feel like <laughs> so many people I know now are going back to school and yeah. if the interest is to maintain uh, um, a place in the academy to teach, you know, to continue to write uh, critically about architecture, it seems like more and more now uh, a PhD is a requirement
1: for that. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts like on that? It's like PhD inflation. <laughs> Everyone's doing a PhD. <laughs> Uh, I don't know, I just don't want to do a PhD, and it's, um, I write, and I, I'm a designer, really, like I said, there's this sort of, this deep passion and fetish for, like, real things, for objects, for buildings, materials, that's what I live for more than anything, and all the other stuff is just part of the process, it's part of what makes it meaningful. Um, but I don't want, sp- I can't imagine spending four years, um, you know, endlessly elaborating on a very specific architectural historical point or theoretical point, because that multitude of um, practices, that the multitude of mediums that I like to work through, this mul- multitude of, of s- sequential projects, together for me form what I think a PhD uh, tries to make itself in like one tiny way, like it forms a body of practice that, for me, is the research. For me, is the the, the substance.
2: So I want to just, I guess, as a way of drawing this conversation to close,
1: uh,
2: try and understand what it means to have your name attached to a movement like this, <gasps> even though I didn't think you, about that properly. <laughs> well, because it seems like you're kind of uh, you, you're kind of ambivalent or aren't necessarily willing to accept uh, the mantle of. Uh, um, a, post, a postmodernist or something, even though I think popularly and in terms of the image that you've cultivated online and through mm. your work, it really does seem to be uh, a movement that you stand for or are a contemporary version of that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is postmodernism in architecture, as far as I'm concerned, is just a whole range of architectures that respond to the contemporary condition. That's it. And I would have liked to make that point as strongly as possible here. But I tried to show how it's not... Charles Jencks has a very specific definition of postmodernism, and it's not Venturi's, which is what Fat r- understood it as, as just like a surface. That's not what I think of when I say postmodernism. I, I'm thinking about the whole range of cultured architecture that responds to a multitude of issues in a non-limited formal manner. Um, so that's why I find the mantle so pro- problematic, because they just I, I then get labelled as like Venturi flat surface ornament. Um, Things become reduced. Yeah. Well, I become, you know, it's it's the the cardboard cutout of what postmodernism uh, was. So, it, you know, like anything, it's a very problematic label. And I used it because that's what people know. Mm-hmm. But actually, I'd love to get rid of that word. And actually, when I talk about architecture, when I talk to my students, when I talk to other about people's, I, I never use that word. It's it's just it's all the incredible range of issues that and problems that are being tackled. Uh, Through design, aesthetically in a visual manner, relating to like really diverse issues of, and again, it's a comic uh, identity narrative, sociality, Mm. hierarchies. There's Um, this line from Paolo Portoghesi, who curated the first Biennale in
2: Venice in 1980. Like he's saying that that project for him was born out of this quote this craze of mine to contaminate, to put vastly removed and sometimes highly contradictory things together convincing them to love each other. There's a kind of, and you quote that in in the book actually, there's something incredibly kind of wonderful and uh, utopic and inclusive about that kind of sentiment that seems to carry through to your project now.
1: Yeah, and he was talking about um, creating a plurality out of design that was not something that could be reduced to this diagram means that this will be functional because of that, which is what they were being told at the time. So it was was actually his reaction to the previous generation at school. Mm. That's what you were talking about.
2: But that reaction, in a way, kind of sums up, um, broadly speaking, the postmodern project was or continues to be. Is that correct? Because I'm just conscious we haven't actually defined this term yet. in Which this term? Postmodern. Yeah. In this conversation. And, um, like, I, I'm sure, like, hopefully the audience for this is general enough that people won't necessarily know. And so is that fair to say that it, it really is about... Um, the heterogeneous, the contaminated, the ambivalent, the kind of um, multiplicity um, of subjectivities as opposed to a kind of singular homogenous
1: expression. I'm re- I mean, I'm really sorry not to be able to give you a clear <laughs> definition because I, I would say yes, but, but that's the problem with the term. It's too giant, it covers too many approaches, so that term, postmodernism, that's what it means for me, those, those the aspects of architecture and design that I find fascinating from actually from the 50s, 60s, 70s and the 80s more in art, less in architecture in the 80s that I find really interesting that deal with all those issues you talk about that very much are, are orchestrated around issues of, of expression and identity, plurality. Well, I mean, that's what I think it is and that's what a lot of the writers were talking about as, and that's what you know, a lot of the practitioners were looking at. But a lot of people see it as skyscrapers with pediments. Uh, they see it as capitalism, they see it as neoliberalism, like the market driven neoliberalism embodied in like a stupid shape that empties history of meaning and just plays with it as like superficial signifiers on an empty surface that's actually just money. So that's what a lot of other people see it as. But of course, for me it's yes, there's that aspect to it, but like my God, no, there's all this there's all the issues that we you just mentioned I've been talking about. This period of architecture was the only one that allowed to be explored.
2: It seems like with the book, you're not only revisiting, but you're in a sense trying to repair the image of this movement.
1: Postmodernism got labelled with neoliberalism, which is just fascinating because actually it it was popular for such a brief period as a corporate architecture. I mean, what, what, is, what is the real language? If we, if we want to really talk about architectural language, what is, just through usage, the real language of neoliberalism? It's, it's you neo know, modernist glass towers. So I, just, it's, I think it's just picked out. Um, again, it was, I, th- I think there's a lot of issues of otherness and other approaches and a certain element of queerness in the way that things are appropriated that became mainstream at that point via people like Philip Johnson and Michael Graves. Um, basically, things that look different, that look camp, that look over the top. they get singled out and labeled, and uh, um, they are made to absorb all the negative connotations that people want to give for a particular period of architecture and politics. And this stands out as being I- I sort of iconic or the particular architect- architectures of this period stand out for being iconic, expressive, garrulous, theatrical, and therefore easy to slam to ridicule, to put down, to so call superficial, and to smear with all kinds of political associations. Hmm. Um, Maybe think-
2: this is a good kind of segue into then discussing the recent debates online about um, you know, a younger generation of, of architects and designers pursuing uh, a, quote, postmodern aesthetic and um, you know, the criticisms around that, especially... So um, Andezine recently... Uh, Sean Griffiths calling out you and your other ar- artists and architects. Uh, I think by
1: name it was just me and Pablo. You and Pablo Bronstein.
2: Mm. And it, I just thought it was interesting how, and we talked a little bit about this before mm. we started recording, but uh, this kind of conflict, um, beyond this idea of it bashing a certain um, you know, identity, there's actually a really exciting, potentially exciting kind of conflict there, mm-hmm. which unfortunately appears to be only... Uh, one-dimensional and generational right now.
1: Yeah, but could you think it could be, become more interesting? Could become more interesting. Because, I, I mean, unfortunately, there is a generational issue at the moment. It's just the people of the generation between these postmodernist pe- masters or whatever um, and the generation who are coming into their professional sort of maturity now, the generation in between just see the monsters that they slew or they, they, they killed um, and the architectures that they hate and they can't, I think they, they find it very difficult. A lot of them find it very difficult to look... Um, historically, and, and critically at it, without without sort of personal hatred.
2: I guess this leads into the question of like, where does discourse happen now? Where ought to it happen? Because yeah, obviously, like the comment section of a design article isn't working.
1: I mean, what I you know what I, there's nothing better I think than like sat, being sat in a room <laughs> for a day, and on multiple times with people who are really passionate about ideas and don't agree with each other. Uh, Without an audience, so I think audience—you know—it's like atoms; they behave differently when they're being watched. Mm -hmm. I think we behave differently when we're being watched. Um, It's kind of salon-type setups, because I think they just—they simply allow for the the non—the non-performative sharing of ideas that is just entirely focused on the ideas themselves. Um, Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe it's time to organize a salon.
2: I guess one last question, and it's probably the one that everyone always asks to conclude things, but um, what's next for Adam Nathaniel
1: from <laughs> <laughs> Probably gonna get hit by a bus. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. I'm probably just gonna end up with 16 cocker Spaniels <laughs> um, wearing a silk gown. Something big, generally, for me that I'm sort of missing, or two things. One, designing more spaces. Um, But two, and I really miss this, is actually, it's funny that you mentioned PhD, but it's getting my teeth in a very, very substantial way back in, it's been a few years, back into, like, uh, some ideas and theory and crafting some more theoretical groundworks for future work. So I feel like I'm sort of, like, I'm coming to the point where I'm just sort of exhausting the theoretical petrol filling that I did a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I think a bit of theoretical work. And is that something you just pursue independently or... I'm one of those annoying autodictacts in the sense I'm all over the place. But I quite, I quite, quite like that because I think that when it's a non-structured exploration of a, of a topic on your own, but done in a deep way, it's like reading the full books and annotating and trying to understand them, that you're forging your own path which means that any design work or design ideas that comes out of that research tends to also not be as defined. So if you're, if you're doing a clear curriculum of like books that are canonical and you're being taught the particular ways of interpreting them that are canonical, then I think also design work that comes out of your research by just by virtue of like type of material you're feeding into your brain will also be within a particular range whereas if you're all over the place like doing your own research you end up with quite unusual results coming out when you're looking at the formal consequences of those ideas
2: well i'm looking forward to many more (laughs) unusual results thank you so much for your time adam yeah thank you very much thanks for listening to scaffold the show is produced by me matthew wonderfield and the theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park. Subscribe to The Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Instagram at Scaffold_Podcast. podcast. Thanks to Adam Nathaniel Furman. His new book is called Revisiting Postmodernism, published by the RIBA. And I'll see you in two weeks.